All right, folks, we're here for the next episode of Purple Ponderings with Pankaj. And I have with me Rob Galbraith um, with the moniker of being the most interesting man in insurance. Actually, I happen to know him for a few years now, and he's also the nicest person. Uh, but to begin with, Rob, uh, for those people who may not have heard of you and they're living under the caves and haven't probably heard or read the book, um, a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure, absolutely. So uh, great to see you again, Pagash. Uh, and congratulations on the podcast and on Purple Ant and just tremendous success. So um, yeah, a little bit about me. Uh, been in the industry for over 20 years. Most of that was at uh, USA. Uh, most of that um, at your time at USA was in underwriting. Um, left in February this year. Uh, started as the new director of innovation at AF Group starting in April of this year. Um, so AF stands for Accident Fund. Uh, we're primarily a workers' comp carrier. Um, so we've got several brands, Accident Fund being kind of the flagship brand. Also have United Heartland, Comp West, Third Coast Underwriters, um, AF Specialty, and, and Fundamental Underwriters. Um, based in Lansing, Michigan, uh, but I work out of my home in San Antonio, Texas. I'm also the author of The End of Insurance as We Know It. Uh, so it's a book that uh, came out in February this year and just had phenomenal success. So I've sold over 2,000 copies in just over six months um, in over 12 countries. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak in Istanbul, Turkey, Vienna, Austria, uh, London, England. Just got back from Sao Paulo, Brazil a couple weeks ago, as well as uh, many events in the U.S. this year. Um, so we're here in Chicago, Illinois at the Insurance Nexus Connected Insurance USA conference. Um, and it's a bit of a reunion because we were here at the very beginning back in February where we had the very first book launch event uh, here in Chicago. So it's great to catch up uh, since that time. Fantastic. Yeah, time flies, doesn't it? So, well, you do seem to have traveled a bit around the world and you've seen uh, and you know success with this book. Congratulations. Uh, this is now uh, the number one bestseller, as I know it, in this category on Amazon. So that's a, it's a great achievement for someone doing it for the first time. So uh, once again, a job well done. It's obviously caught something with so many different people, right? And as you've traveled around the world and gotten feedback and, uh, you know, the first question that comes to my mind is um, what have you, is there any, pattern of feedback that you've collected from the different people around the world, right? Is there something in common? Is there something unique that either based on the geography or the role that they play uh, is something that you've learned from, from talking to this audience? Yeah, so a couple of things. Number one, everyone thinks their particular insurance industry is behind other countries and other uh, continents. And um, so it's kind of interesting to me that I think the perception is that, oh, we're behind, but other areas are, are doing it better, faster, or whatever. And so I think everyone's struggling with that. So I guess assurance to everybody that you're not the slowest insurance market, probably, no matter where you live. Um, but I think that just speaks to this general sense that the insurance industry is a an older, a traditional industry, and is in need of a reboot and, and change and, and needs to be more responsive to emerging customer needs. Um, the second thing that I'll mention is um, uh, it tends to skew a bit older. And so um, 
there's always concerns about you know talent and bringing younger people into the workforce. Um, I just came from Sao Paulo a couple of weeks ago, and I was um, a little bit surprised. I probably shouldn't have been, but one of the key presentations was on the generations, and they were talking about boomers and Gen X and millennials and the incoming Gen Z. Um, and there was a bit of a hand wringing and conundrums, and how do we you know work together with all these different generations in the workforce? And so it was great for me and eye-opening to say, hey, this isn't confined to the U.S. or Europe. You know, this is a problem all over the world. So um, countries like Brazil tend to skew a little bit younger than we do in the, the U.S. and elsewhere, but yet they're still struggling with some of these challenges of how do we bring new people into the industry, younger people, and, and get them excited about the insurance industry. And obviously that's um, something that is near and dear to the heart of uh, the insurance nerds and really kind of how they got their, their start and their foundation. It's something that they've done a tremendous job of, of just being wonderful brand ambassadors for the insurance industry um, and recruiting new talent uh, into the industry as well. Got it, got it, super. So um, let's go a little bit into sort of uh, uh, a topic which is near and dear to uh, to me as well as I know for you because you covered it a little bit. And it's in the context of insure techs and sort of the newer technologies which are now available to solve the old world problems and, you know, make the incumbents also sort of do some things differently. Uh, and I'm referring to uh, IoT or the Internet of Things, right? And you've covered that in your book a little bit. But I'd like just like for you to maybe um, un, you know get your under perspective a little bit more now, given that you've uh, you know you've come out with this book, you've got some reactions. I'm very curious to know what do you think about IoT, you know, more also from an adoption perspective. So broadly speaking, just your thoughts on this. Yeah. So I think um, since the book came out, a um, couple things. Uh, number one is at AF Group, we um, have been uh, doing pilots with a wearable company called Make You Safe. Uh, so they're based in Des Moines, Iowa, great folks. Um, and so they've really uh, thought very long and hard and very, uh, very thoughtfully designed uh, their wearable device for um, all manner of, of work environments. But it's basically a, a very lightweight uh, wearable device. You wear it on an armband just like you might if you went to go work out in the gym and put your phone in an armband and listen to music or things like that. Um, and it collects a bunch of information from the worker's perspective, but, but nothing about the worker themselves. So it's not biometric information. It's not their heart rate or anything like that. But um, it's capturing the temperature that they're experiencing as they go around their, their job, uh, the relative humidity, noise levels, um, air quality, things like that. Also, will track slips, trips, and falls as an accelerometer, things like that. And um, so it's giving insights into... Um, you know, people's day-to-day -day, uh, as they work in, in various environments. And um, some have been in welding, some have been in foundries, some have been, um, you know, just kind of on the factory floors, uh, uh, food manufacturing, other other types of industries. And um, so they're able to gain insights from this. And um, I've heard just some, some remarkable stories about... Um, potential hazards that weren't necessarily, you know, cause of an injury, but um, because they noticed from the data, um, working with safety managers, they were able to make some changes that helped reduce the uh, likelihood of an injury. And it was these scenarios where it's not if, but 
but really when an injury were to occur. So this whole idea of near misses that you and I have talked about for quite some time, um, maybe more in the context of a smart home, you know, water sensors and things like that, um, it absolutely is true there, but it's true more broadly, right? So I'm seeing that in the, the wearable industry as well. So um, I just think it has huge potential. Um, the adoption curve is still a challenge, and everyone's still trying to figure that out and kind of incentives and getting the – so you know, the potential is huge, and, and people realize that, and I think they're getting validated. But there's still this conundrum of um, the business model, right? So who pays for it? How do you get them out there? Um, what's the data worth? And, and understanding that there's a time lag between the time you deploy these devices and between the time that you're actually um, reducing claims and you're actually showing that up in your frequency, your reduction in, in claims frequency and things like that. So I still think people are still trying to figure out the the right business model. But there's a lot of um, uh, folks like Hippo and others that are doing some very interesting things in this space, partnerships with non-traditional players like Comcast and others. Um, so yeah, I think it's exciting and still um, I think has even more potential probably than I imagined when the book came out. And I think I was fairly bullish even uh, you know at the beginning of the year on IoT, but just increases the more exposure I get. Got it, got it, super. So in the example, just the one you know, question to feed off of the, the the variables example you mentioned at AF Group. Just over the time that you spent with that project and that initiative, uh, what have you learned that would make you change something about the way AF Group, you know, operates today, right? So is there, um, my guess is you still are at a phase where you're trying to figure it all out, but if you were to put a crystal ball and say, you know what, I think here's are the two or three different ways how we could improve what we've been doing, right? So what would be those, you know, impacts in, or changes that you would, you know, foresee for, for, for your company? Yeah, so we're members of the um, IoT, observe, <coughs> excuse me, IoT Insurance Observatory um, led by Matteo Carboni, and I know you uh, interviewed Matteo. Um, and you know he actually came and, and did um, the latest round of workshops at our United Heartland um, uh, affiliate uh, last week, uh, just outside of, of Milwaukee. And uh, I found it really interesting because he really talked about you've got to get the incentive structure right, and you've got to have a, a you know what we used to call with them at USA, right? What's in it for me? For whether it's workers, whether it's drivers and vehicles or whatnot, like it's it's not good enough, it's particularly in commercial applications, sometimes you can say, well, you know, these drivers work for you, right, or these workers are working for you, so you can require that they they, they, they wear it or use it, the telematics or whatever it is, right? And you said it's just not enough. Like, there needs to be some reward, some motivation, something that they see benefit in, and just assuring them that, hey, by wearing this, it's going to make your workplace safer down the line. That, that's too vague. It needs to be more immediate. So, uh, some of the examples that were used, and I mentioned in my talk, is, is Allstate has this DriveWise program where it's not just giving you robust feedback about your driving, but every month it actually says, this is the dollars and cents that you saved, right? Really giving you that bottom line, making it very, very direct uh, and very impactful. Um, others, there's been you know gift cards that we've, we've done when we had uh, AF Group employees kind of you know, test them out for us before we rolled it out to policyholders, um, others, but there's got to be something in there, right? Um, and so figuring that part out. And then the other thing I think that um, 
as these get deployed, like you, you'll, you'll get a rash of insights at the very beginning, right? So you had no line of sight to whatever it is. Again, it could be water leaks, it could be uh, wearables, it could be a whole host of things, telematics, right? And so you kind of get this wave of initial insights, and they may be actionable. But then over time, there's kind of a sense of, well, what's next and what's new and, and not much may change. Now that you know this information, right, and these things may not change time to time. And so um, I think there's a sense that um, people, they want a little bit more wow factor or, or that long-term engagement, right? So once that initial kind of wave of interest and the novelty wears off, Right? How do you kind of incorporate this long-term into your risk management solution? So I think that's a problem that, again, um, a lot of folks, you know, I didn't address in the book, a lot of folks had done with because they were just starting out with these devices. But now that they grow in maturity, I think how to sustain and go beyond the initial uh, value prop is something that leaders like yourself are noodling on. Got it, got it. Super. That's super helpful. So something that you mentioned, I uh, uh, wanted to get back to now the book. Right, so uh, any, uh, what are your thoughts, what are your future plans? Do you think uh, you might be ready for your next book? And even if you're not, and let's say whatever time comes and you have to write something, uh, have you collected some feedback or you know, have you put on your own thought process to what that topic or what is that next book likely to be about? And, and mind sharing some, some of those thoughts? Sure, yeah. Um, so number one, um, some of the things that I talk about have already been proven wrong. You know, that's a question that I get sometimes is what were you wrong about? So I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, James River is an um, ENS carrier, an excess and suppress alliance carrier that was uh, very early on an insurance company to Uber yes. and its drivers. And so I talk about that in the book about, hey, there's your standard auto insurance companies, your state farms, your uh, Geico's, your progressives, et cetera. Um, and none of them wanted to insure Uber. And obviously, we've seen this explosion in ride sharing, right? And I kind of cited it as a missed opportunity and said, hey, this is where an ENS carrier that's got a little bit more flexibility or whatnot really kind of jumped in. And, um, you know, that book had, had grown tremendously to the point where Uber was their number one client. So I kind of cited as a sound business strategy. Well, then the announcement came out about the month ago that James River is going to be dumping all of their Uber contracts uh, next year. And they were saying uh, that they you know, were unprofitable and they had to take reserves up for kind of you know, 2015, 2016. So I'm not surprised that they got the pricing wrong to start with. That would be very common. Um, so that part didn't surprise me, but I think the fact in 2019, even with the adjustment reserves, that they felt like they still couldn't get the price right, um, and rather than kind of renewing on a new price or whatever in 2020, they're just dumping the account entirely, and it had a, a material effect on their stock price went down and things like that, right? Um, so that surprises me, and I don't know, don't have any inside information or know all the details right around that, and I know there's been some suppressing insurance journal and others on that for those that want to read more about that, but there's one where, hey, clearly I thought they were ahead of the game, and turns out, you know, that was a, a failed experiment from their point of view. It doesn't mean that other people won't jump into that space, um, and I know Uber has uh, really worked on um, captives and other, you know, ways to kind of insure, and Uber itself has been struggling with profitability, right, after their IPO and things like that. Um, so there's definitely things that I've gotten wrong um, that if I were to do an updated version of what I've talked about, right, it would kind of revise and, hey, here's the rest of the story here, how things have played out. The other thing that I think um, 
so I, I, I may or may not do a, a, a revised edition. I think I would, I would, I would like to. Um, I think there um, could be some value in doing that. But I will say the other thing, and, and I've really thought about this maybe more as a separate book. So again, kind of early thinking here, not committing to, is really focusing on the future of insurance. So my book, The End of Insurance, as you know, it talks quite a bit about um, what's wrong with insurance and how it could be changing and how it's, it's, it's different, but that doesn't mean that it can't evolve. But um, probably the fairest criticism I've gotten, you see it in some of the Amazon reviews and others, which is are great. It's, it's 4.8 out of 5, so we're kind of nitpicking here. But some of the reviews have been a little bit more... Um, you know, hey, great book in terms of diagnosing problems, but we you know, would love to have had more focus on solutions, right? And what is the future of the industry? And so I touch on some of those, and I think they're a little bit more theoretical, or I'll kind of pass by some examples, but really drilling down with some very specific case studies. Um, talking about embedded insurance, on-demand insurance, and, and there's so many examples from around the world um, of where it's working that I think those would be highly relevant to leaders to help spur thinking. Um, so kind of really focusing on what's working um, in this new space could have a lot of value. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> awesome. That's that. Uh, I don't know what is the name you're going to pick of the book, but the future of insurance sounds like a very, very, very compelling, uh, you know, topic and, and a catchphrase. And I'm excited. I think I'm excited to see what you're going to put in there because, you know, with all these technologies coming out. So my next question is, there's so many new technologies coming out there, right? And the new kinds of insurance coming out there based on new kinds of expectations of the consumers. And uh, if you were to crystal gaze, because um, I'm obviously coming from the technology world, so I'm always wanting from, you know, this input from people like you, you know, you hear a blockchain and artificial intelligence and machine learning and virtual reality and, uh, you know, IoT, you know, all of these technologies, do you, which ones do you think will find a place for them in this future of insurance? Uh, and, and if all of them do, then what do you think is the order based on what you see? So, um, AI, I think, is huge. It's here now, right? And I think the future of insurance is going to be competing on algorithms. You know, I think most insurance, so in the past, a lot of it was on focused on data collection. So you've got all these application questions you're asking and all this, right? You've got third-party data providers that are out there. So data is critically important. But I think more and more, there's so many data providers out there. There's so many ways to get this information. You actually don't need to ask the policyholder that many questions because, you know, you can assess a lot of the risk through third-party data, public sources, and aerial images and stuff like that. So I think the data collection is actually going to be less important. I think that's going to be more table stakes. It's what you do with that data that's going to be critically important. And insurers are going to compete on algorithms. Whoever has the best algorithms is going to win the game is kind of the way I see it. So I think that's a, a here-now technology. Um, and I think AI needs to be central to everybody's strategy. I talk quite a bit about the move from paper-based maps to GPS. That's kind of how I open the book. And we don't really think about it. It's just GPS, but it's revolutionized, right, the way that we uh, get around in the last 10 years. It's enabled things like Uber, uh, like Lime scooters and stuff like that. Um, I'm big on blockchain. So that is not ready for prime time now. And, and you know, there's, you know, call it blockchain, but really you're hearing more about, you know, enterprise distributed ledger technology or enterprise DLT. Um, and, you know, part of the reason I'm so bullish on that, and whether it will pan out or uh, no, I don't know. I don't know if we have crystal ball yet. But um, 
there's so many parties to an insurance transaction beyond the people that form the contract. So you, typically you have your agent, uh, your carrier, and your policyholder, right? And the three of them together form the insurance contract. Um, but the reality is a whole lot more people are involved. So you've got third-party claimants that are involved. You've got medical providers. You've got body shops. You've got you know, remediation services. You've got all sorts of folks. I mean, you've got so many parties that were part of that original contract formation, but as part of the claim or as part of you know, maintaining the policy, things like that, um, that play a role. And they need to exchange information. That information needs to be trusted and verified. And that's what drives up expenses in insurance. So you know, I talk in the book about credit cards, and when you swipe that credit card, right, it's highly regulated industry, banking, you've got Visa and MasterCard, plus you've got the bank, plus you've got fraud and regulation, but yet it only costs 3% transaction fee, whereas insurance is about 30% as an expense ratio. That's a 10x more expensive than swiping a credit card. And I don't think insurance will ever get down to 3%, but um, I don't think there's any reason that it shouldn't be in the high single digits. And so wringing some of the costs out of the system I think is critically important, and that's where a big opportunity is. Um, and so um, blockchain is one of those that I think wringing costs of the system, right? This need for verification and trust and checking things. If you could create these smart contracts that a lot of folks have talked about, um, I don't know if it's going to be based on Ethereum or Hyperledger. A lot of folks are talking about, you know, Corda. Um, and I know there's a Ristream collaborative here in the U.S. There's B3I in Europe that are both looking at, at Corda as enabling technology. Um, so I, I think that'll be huge. Don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Have a lot more thoughts on it. Too, too much to go into. Um, you know, aside from that, I definitely think uh, aerial imagery, right, is, is, is big now. And there's a lot of machine learning that kind of unlocks the value that, it, you know, having a human look at it is, is one thing, but having machines looking at it at scale is a whole other thing. You can get a different degree of insight. Um, but really talking about computer vision, right, so talking about video. Um, and, you know, more broadly, I talk about, like, making dumb devices smart. And what I mean by that is, you know, you've got security cameras all over. So you might have a security camera on a factory floor or things like that. And um, I know I, I previously had a, a workplace injury when I worked at USA. And so um, after I was hurt, um, one of the things that they did um, from the workers' comp insurer, which was Liberty Mutual at the time, uh, was meet with uh, my employer and, and review the videotape, right? So what happened? So we know Rob got injured around 4 o'clock on Tuesday, right, in the lobby of the, the, the facility. Well, if you have computer vision, right, which is basically AI kind of processing all those images, um, what you would see, right, is that a lot of people had kind of minor injuries. Now, they weren't seriously hurt, right, but they, you know, had um, uh, similar encounters to what I did, right, where I ran into a plate glass window, right? So they walked into it and they kind of bumped into it or whatever. And so it was something that people thought this window was a door and they kept trying to walk through it. Uh, they didn't expect that I was... You know, going to be the idiot that tried to, to, to run through it. And that's a long story behind that. But, um, so they ended up putting a, a cactus in front of the window so that people wouldn't make that mistake anymore. But you know, I think computer vision would have said, hey, you know, five people bumped into this window in the last month. You would have been able to proactively put that cactus there before somebody got seriously hurt. So I, I think um, just kind of really the extension of AI and other technologies to make um, – sensors and other dumb devices smart you have you know ai behind databases where you're logging transactions today well you know you're just capturing it but that, that database isn't thinking about it. it's not learning from all these transactions that are being entered you put ai behind it right it can kind of learn and over time kind of predict 
correct errors, things like that. So, and then finally, you know, uh, RPA automation. I know sometimes these back office tasks are not very sexy, but there's a lot of people. There's still people today in 2019 that are taking information from screen A and typing it into screen B. I mean, it's just really painful, right? So, um, billing, document handling, all sorts of back office um, automation tasks, I think, are really ripe for uh, disruption. Got it. Got it. Well, I was looking for IoT and that didn't come no, up. I, so is that just because, uh, you know, you don't see that or what, what do you think about? Like, it, it really goes back to the sensors. I talked about so making dumb devices smart. So, right, um, you know, what, what's interesting is the deployment of the cheap sensors everywhere, right? Um, and then getting that data and then making sense of it, that competing in algorithms that we talked about. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I was just selfishly trying to get in, but we've talked about next, you know, near miss index, and that's really a application of AI to the IoT data, right? That's that's what it is all about. Um, all right, let's get into a different section of the uh, and get to know Rob a little bit as a person. I mean, I of course uh, do know a little bit of you, but let me ask you this: I know you're traveling a lot. I know you speak a lot, but if Rob has the time. What do you read? Who do you follow? What do you like to listen to? Who do you like to listen from? Uh, those are all great questions. So, you know, it's interesting. Somebody asked me um, when I was in London, um, they were like sources of information. And, and so I said, you know, I'm really big on social media and, and following certain kind of thought leaders. And um, I had friends that don't like that term, thought leaders, folks like Nigel Walsh and others, right? But I, I, I like it. And I think those are voices that you kind of, you know, look to that really kind of resonate with you um, that are uh, kind of on top of it. Um, I, I'm not as good about reading blogs and other things. I think a lot of people find value in that. And there are some wonderful ones out there, but I just haven't found those. I, I love listening to podcasts. So that one is a big one um, on airplanes, things like that. Um, obviously profiles in risk and, and the other, you know, there's so many great content that the insurance nerds puts out. Um, my boss, Abel Travis has a great podcast, the insurance innovators unscripted podcast. He's got over 6,000 subscribers and um, just uh, completed his hundredth episode. So congratulations to Abel on that. Um, but, you know, I listen to, to others that are kind of outside the insurance industry as well. So the Knowledge Project by Shane Parrish is a great one of Farnham Street and the Farnham Street blog. Um, there's one, uh, Masters of Scale by uh, Reed Hoffman, as founder of LinkedIn, is a really good one. I like the A16Z podcast. This is put out by Andreessen Horowitz, which is a VC firm very well known. Um, they have a wonderful podcast. So um, there's just a, a ton of great content out there. Um, and I love reading books. I, I have my Kindle everywhere. I've got way more Kindle books than I have time to read. Um, and sometimes I need like downtime, right, kind of for my mind. But if, I, if I've, I've got the mental energy to kind of process, I always learn a, a, a lot um, through uh, books. In terms of listening, um, also listen to music. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, I think I like a little bit more um, varied music. So there's definitely, uh, you know, I like some modern, I even like some EDM, which is uh, surprising to people, but also like a more kind of down-tempo EDM or chill EDM rather than the really, you know, club-thumping kind of stuff. Um, still love classical music, always have. Um, a little bit of jazz, right? Love Enya, right? Some kind of peaceful kind of calming, right? It was, it was really good. Um, and then just for fun, right? Golf, I know we've been out a lot. We, we both don't play as much as we would like to, right? Um, but um, yeah, and just any time. I love hiking, love spending time outside with the you know, family and friends. 
Got it, got it. No, thanks. That's uh, really good insights into Rob the Man. And like your book, it's very well-rounded, right? It's reading, listening, hiking, outdoors, indoors. I like it. Super. So, um, well, with that, I think we're going to come and wrap up this episode. It was great to hear and talk to you, Rob. Uh, and uh, we're obviously looking forward to future success and more accomplishments uh, from you, so we'll keep in touch um, and then we'll like to sign out now. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Pankaj. So great to catch up and again, congrats on all your success and uh, wish you continued success in 2020 and beyond. Awesome. Thank you. Signing off now. This is Pankaj.